Jesus, the good teacher, we come to be taught by you and your Holy Spirit. We know you will direct us this morning into your word to see your revelation and your, your ministry that brought us what we have today, what we rejoice in today, which is our salvation. So we thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for the good news now and for eternity. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We pray that your blessing would be upon your people and that our ears would be tuned to your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would direct us and correct us this morning by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please open God's word with me to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 this morning. I have lofty goals to finish Mark chapter 1 in a couple of weeks. (laughs) <laughs> I was telling Sherry on the way in this morning that uh, it's nice if you could actually cover a large section at a time in these gospel accounts and narratives, but God seems to draw so much out of His Word as I study and as I see the revelation of Jesus. I just want to rejoice in it, and I want you to see it. And so I, I don't necessarily think that I'll cover a lot this morning, but I think we should cover what God wants us to see this morning in the ministry of Jesus, in the preaching ministry of Jesus this morning. In Mark 1, 35 to 39, if you have an outline, you can see this. We we can see that prayerful direction led Jesus to persistent proclamation of his mission. That's just kind of a nice summary statement. Prayerful direction led Jesus to persistent proclamation of his mission. And that's important for us today because we know that in Mark's context, he is actually speaking to his disciples. Jesus is ministering to his disciples, and he is showing them a pattern that they will be able to follow. And so I think that prayerful direction and persistent proclamation is also a part of our mission as Jesus' disciples today. And we need to learn from Jesus this morning to see that. In Mark 1, 35 to 39, we saw part of this last time, Jesus teaches us that the gospel of God should be, number one, directed prayerfully. So Jesus sets himself apart to pray in verse 35. And then, secondly, we see that the gospel should be proclaimed persistently. Now, that's not just applicable to Jesus, which it was, and he modeled it for us, but it's applicable to us as his disciples, As long as we are here as his ambassadors, this is what we are called to do. Follow his direction and proclaim his message till he comes. Then we'll rejoice about that message in eternity. We will never outgrow the gospel message. It is part and parcel of our Christianity. As disciples, we should rejoice in it. It will lead sinners to Jesus and it will sanctify saints. Jesus understood this perfectly. He taught his disciples by his own example and his constant proclamation. When you read the Gospel of Mark, which you need to note, I did this this week, I went through and and marked this out. Jesus is known, other than the, the title Son of Man, he is known more by the other title we see in Mark, which is Teacher. Every chapter, literally every chapter, refers to Jesus as a teacher or as teaching. Teaching was preeminent in Jesus' ministry, and it should be preeminent in our ministry, whether it's behind a pulpit or on the street or in your family. Preaching and teaching, proclaiming, caruso, 
heralding truth from Scripture, that is what we are called to do as Jesus' disciples. We're learning from him this morning. I think it's very appropriate that after he called his disciples into ministry, we see earlier in Mark, he then says, let me show you how it is done practically. And then he goes into the synagogue, he preaches, he casts out demons, he exerts his power, he exerts that power powerfully. There as he casts out demons, shows his authority to teach and to control spiritual beings. And then he goes into this pattern here that we see, this private ministry in Verse 29, and then that moves him to basically considering what he should do in his public ministry in verse 35. So let's look at verse 35 this morning. And I'm going to read 35 to 39. And what I want you to do, I want you to use, I think you can do this because this is a narrative, you can use some divine imagination here. You're not going to read into this text, but I want you to imagine yourself with Jesus in this text. If you're a believer, you are a disciple, and therefore you should look at this text as a learner this morning. Imagine what this would have been like to be with Jesus after he had been in the synagogue preaching, casting out demons, and then goes into Peter's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law miraculously by touching her compassionately. And then flocks and flocks of diseased and destitute people find him there, and he goes out and spends the entire night practically touching them, healing them delivering them. And then in verse 35, it says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 39 would have taken months, would have taken much time. It's a summary of what he actually said he would do in verse 38. In verse 35, we saw this last time, that Jesus teaches us that the gospel of God should be directed prayerfully. We saw here that Jesus goes aside in prayer. He submits his mission and his ministry to God the Father's direction here. I think it would have been easy for him after Peter came to him especially and said, everyone is looking for you. It would have been an easy temptation for him to stay there and minister, set up his own kingdom, his own ministry there in this area, this region. He could actually gather a great following here. But he said, that's not why I came. I came to proclaim. And so I go to prayer and I find God's direction. God directs his heart and his mind and constrains him and directs him, sends him forth to do the most necessary of ministries, which is proclaim truth that gives life and health spiritually to sinners, not just temporally. So he submits to God's mission through direction, through prayer. In verse 35, we see that Jesus' prayerful direction led him to proclamation. It led him to do God's will, which was continue preaching the gospel of God's grace to others, to sinners throughout the region. 
I think that's very important that we see that here because he didn't stop here and say, I'm going to set up my kingdom now. I have many followers. I can set up my kingdom and my rule here. And if he had done that, very, it's very likely that they would have pushed him to be their king. People would have followed after him because he was a provider. He gave them what they needed physically. But he said, you, you need something greater than this. This is temporal. You need something eternal. You need the message that I am proclaiming that brings forth this power that delivers sinners from the trappings of sin. And so we go into Mark 1, 36 to 39 to see that Jesus teaches us that the gospel, the gospel of God should also be not only directed prayerfully, it should be proclaimed persistently. That's the word I want to get impressed upon your heart this morning. Persistent proclamation was the mark of Jesus' ministry, and it should be the mark of ours also. Proclamation of God's word, God's revelation. In Mark, look at verse 36. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. They were looking for him. They wanted him to fulfill their temporal needs. And he says, Listen, I need, to, I need to make sure you understand something. I have to reject this. That's what it says in 36 through 37. We see Jesus persist in rejecting this temptation. He is persistent in the rejection of temptation here. Again, Peter was excited. I mean, can you blame him? Hundreds, maybe thousands, who knows how many came searching for Jesus. And Peter says, look, the crowds are gathering This is a great opportunity. Let's be pragmatic. Let's pursue this. Jesus says, I have a greater ministry to come. And if you set me up as king now, you try to make the crown come before the cross, you will miss the greatest ministry of all. I come to die. I come to give my life a ransom. That's the gospel of the kingdom. I come to bring the kingdom to earth, not in the way you think, but in the way God has designed in His majestic mystery of grace. It will come through His death, not through His temporal ministry of healing. So Jesus, to keep Himself focused, I think He prayed. I think He was constantly giving His mind over to God's revelation and God's wisdom to direct His ministry here. He knew that preaching was the most necessary form that God had called Him to go into. So look at 38a. Here in 38a, we see Jesus' persistent rejection and instruction to his disciples. Look what 38 says, how he responds to Peter's excitement. And, and this, is, this seems counterintuitive to us humanly. But again, God's ways are not our ways, okay? It seems counterintuitive. You have a large following Jesus. Go after them. Set up this comfortable ministry here. And then Jesus comes back with this, this statement. He doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you why I'm going to do this. He just says, let us go on. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Now, what you need to remember here is Jesus is the teacher. And he doesn't say, let me go on to the next town so I may preach the gospel. He's speaking to his disciples. Do you want to see what a persistent ministry looks like? One that brings God glory? Let us go so you will learn this is preeminence. 
If you're not careful, you will be distracted in ministry by the temporal. We need to look toward the eternal when we preach, when we teach, when we evangelize. Pragmatism has no place in the pulpit. We don't do whatever works here. We preach the word and we see God reveal himself to sinners through that. He builds his church through the preaching of the word. Jesus knew that. Jesus said, let us go. I'm not going to lose any of those that I have called from the foundation of the world there that followed me in this area, this region. They will come. But let us go with this message. I think that's important for us to keep in mind as Christians. We still do this. We have been given the Great Commission so that we are now being with these disciples here saying, let us go with Jesus into the world. We are the ones who now carry forth His preaching ministry. But here in 38, Jesus is instructing His disciples. He's instructing us as His disciples as well. He's instructing us that preaching is preeminent or primary. And nothing, even these these people, even these hurting people around Him, even though they, they hurt now, He knows there's something more important that they need other than physical healing. He says, nothing will deter me from my primary ministry of teaching about God's revelation and God's coming kingdom. He knows that that ministry is more essential. It's more necessary. And so he goes forth preaching. He knew that preaching is unlike the healing ministry. Preaching is not just temporary. Preaching is, understand this, preaching God's word is transcendent. We are preaching a transcendent message, a message that carries with it its power that comes from God, power that comes from the Spirit of God, power that brings forth God's kingdom in God's people's hearts. It's power that displays God's authority. It comes through a transcendent message about a transcendent God who is holy. He speaks to his people through the preaching of his word, and Jesus understood that. The preaching of the word carries with it the very power of heaven. We have to believe that or we die as a church. When you evangelize, if you don't believe that it's the word of God that cuts through the heart of the sinner and grafts a new heart by drawing them to the Savior and bringing them into union with Him, if you don't believe that, if you believe your ministry is based on your cleverness, you will fail and be discouraged. But if you know that the message is alive from God, it is alive and living because it is God's word, it comes from heaven, you know that that ministry of the word will produce God-exalting results because it carries, again, the power of the Spirit. It carries the power of heaven, the revelation of God's nature, the revelation of His beauty, the revelation of His authority. The preaching of the word carries forth God's people. It brings them to salvation. It sanctifies them. It gives life to the dead. It does so because the power is from God. The power is from His Spirit. It opens spiritually blinded eyes. It gives life to the spiritually corrupt and dead. Look with me at Ezekiel 37 to see that. Ezekiel 37 shows that to us very clearly. Ezekiel 37 is an illustration of the power of preaching. What we see illustrated in Ezekiel 37 is no different than what happens in the heart of every unbelieving person. When God speaks and His Spirit moves upon them, they will come to life. And we have to believe that as we minister. 
We must be persistent in that kind of proclamation. We know that God can give life. His word can cultivate true saving faith and life in the sinner. It can restore what has been <laughs> corrupt by sin. Look what 37.1 says. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Now, these weren't just fresh bones. These were bones that were basically decaying. These are bones that have no morrow in them, no life. There is nothing there but death. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers properly here. And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear, what is he hearing? Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. God is the initiator here. Through his word, through his spirit, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and to cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Now, now folks, this just doesn't seem logical. This doesn't seem possible. But Ezekiel says, I will do what I am commanded. And listen, when you go out to evangelize, when you go out to even correct Christians and edify one another, sometimes you have to say things that seem are impossible for that person to comprehend. But you must put your faith in God's Spirit and God's Word and speak living truth. Because that alone will transform the sinner's heart. And so he says this, he says in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I, as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy, or preach to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. He preached to these dry bones, and life was brought forth by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God, a miracle took place through the proclamation of His Word. And that's what happens when you proclaim truth that comes from God's revelation. Nothing we say as Christians, when we speak from the book, when we speak from Scripture, nothing that we say is insignificant or temporal. It is eternal. 
It has eternal consequences when we preach it, when we teach it, when we explain it. Because we're not just teaching about history or narratives. We're, we're speaking forth the revelation of Jesus. We're declaring who he is, and he is speaking. He is alive. It is a living book. He is able to divide between bone and marrow, spirit and soul. It can pierce the heart, reveal us, lay us bare, and then heal us. We must be persistent in this proclamation like Jesus was. Because Jesus is the subject of our proclamation. We should do it in honor of Him. We should do it in honor of Him constantly as an act of worship as Christians. See, evangelism and even any other kind of ministry of the word, edification, it's an act of worship, not just duty. We do it because we want to exalt the name of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what all Scripture testifies to. Scripture testifies to the power of God's revelation, how it points to the the revealer, to the the Savior. And that's what transforms the sinner. I might jot these verses down here. Psalm 146. Turn there with me. Psalm 146. Preaching here points. We'll see this in Psalm 146. Preaching points sinners to a sovereign judge and a life-giving Savior. We see that in Psalm 146. Preaching, praising the Lord. Preaching, the word preaching here in Mark's gospel is the word caruso. It means to herald or proclaim with a loud voice, unashamedly. So when you come to this passage, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. He is preaching. And his preaching points sinners like me and you. It points us to a sovereign judge who's over all men, and to a saving, life-giving God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And he's talking about spiritual conditions here. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. He sets prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind through this proclamation. He causes those who are bowed down to be lifted up. He causes those who love righteousness to inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Matthew 5. Preaching exalts the Savior. Preaching declares God's attributes before people so they could see He is not only sovereign, but He is a saving sovereign God. He will raise up those who are brought low as we reveal to them the greatness of His power, which is revealed in Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm 19. 
In Psalm 19, we can see that preaching exalts God and His revelation as our greatest treasure. As Christians, we should look at God's Word and see the the revelation of His nature, His attributes, and we should see that revelation as our greatest treasure on earth. This is the only thing you get to take with you into heaven, is this revelation. It's transcendent. It's beyond the grave. You are being given a glimpse of heaven here in Scripture, one that you will see perfectly without sin in glory. But here, we should treasure this. If we treasure it, we should persistently proclaim it. Look what it says in Psalm 19.7. When it says the law, he's speaking of the Old Testament in general. The law of the Lord is perfect, Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. His revelation is our greatest treasure. It is what revives our soul. It gives us wisdom. It rejoices our heart. It enlightens our eyes to his glory and his saving grace in Jesus. It causes us to reflect. Revere or fear Him. It directs our paths. And it should be what we long for more than anything in this earth. To know Him. And to exalt His Son. As we come to His Word and we see that revelation unfolded before us. When God's revelation becomes our treasure, you will persistently proclaim it. When, when God's revelation becomes our treasure, all earthly pleasures and pursuits will pale in comparison. You will persistently pursue His glory through the revelation and proclamation of His Word that talks about His Son. When that's your treasure. When you treasure what God has revealed to you, you will be persistent in following Him as a disciple. His persistent instruction will lead you to see eternal realities. This, everything you see right now, including me, <laughs> is temporal. We're all fading away. Everything you see in this world is temporary, except this eternal truth. This is reality. This is what you will see face-to-face in eternity. You will see the Word Jesus Christ, who revealed, exegeted God the Father for us on this earth and His Spirit that actually penned it for us in the Word here before us. You will see the triune God and worship at His footstool, at His throne. Jesus instructed His disciples that this is the greatest treasure that a man could ever have. The one that He could... Pursue from now on because in it there's all that he needs for eternity. Look what Matthew 13 says about that when Jesus teaches this. Matthew 13. 
The reality is in the message of the gospel, in the message of the word, we see the Savior. He is our greatest treasure. He is what we want to persistently point people to. His work, His glory, His praises. And in, Psalm, or in, Psalm, in Matthew 13, 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven, which can be a synonym for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We have the greatest treasure of all in front of us. And everything else should pale in comparison to this. And we should pursue this great treasure and pursue proclaiming it continually throughout the world. It should be the treasure that actually compels us to be submitted to our king. John Piper put it this way, when the kingdom is a treasure, submission is a pleasure. When the kingdom of God is our treasure, and when the king is our treasure, submission to him will be pure and undefiled pleasure. The goal of preaching, all preaching, is to point sinners to that great treasure that we find in Christ Jesus. Preaching should point us that direction. Preaching should exalt his ministry, his life, his finished atoning work. Let me just say this. I'm going to get to it in a moment, but a church doesn't exist without preaching. There is no church if there is no preaching. If God's word is not proclaimed in the pulpit, there is no church. The church was created through the word of God. He will build his church. He will sustain his church and he will edify his church and he will do it with his word. Jesus tells us this constantly in the epistles. We can see that. And when you think about what Jesus was teaching his disciples there in Mark 1.38, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. He is teaching his disciples about the importance of not only holding forth the word, but establishing that as the pattern for their teaching. He's still teaching us that today. We have to persist in preaching God's word to evangelize the lost and to edify the church. In the book of Acts and in all the epistles, you can see that the disciples finally learned that lesson. The disciples became persistent proclaimers because they learned from the master. And listen, you as a disciple, you have the master's words before you. You have his commission. You have his spirit. You have all that you need for life and godliness contained in this word, this revelation. You can carry forth your ministry, be persistent in proclaiming, confident that God will use it, even if it's a five-minute encounter at, the, at Walmart at the checkout stand. If you declare truth from God's word, God, God will be exalted, number one. And that person may be brought the greatest news in the world. We have to believe that this is what Jesus wants us to do as a church. It's what he taught his disciples personally, and it's what he commissioned us to do continually until he comes. Now, let me, let me take you through the outline there on your, on your paper this morning. And I'm probably not going to go much further than this this morning because I have much more to say, not nearly enough time, and I know that. But I want us to focus on this, just to see the importance of being persistent in proclaiming Scripture. Our church is a Bible church. That word is chosen very Significantly, we, we picked that word out to, to identify 
the focus of what we are learning from. The Bible, God's Word, it is to direct everything we do in this church. The disciples taught us that. The apostles taught us that when they wrote these scriptures before us. The disciples learned that, number one, the Word persistently proclaimed will lead sinners to Jesus. And do we believe that? I'm going to give you an example of it. Acts chapter 2. I know we believe this as a church. I know that you believe this as a church, and I believe this as a church personally. But do we really apply this truth practically? Okay, it's, it's one thing to assent to the truth, to identify with the truth. Say, yeah, I believe it. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. I am a disciple. But are you persistent in applying this truth? If it was true in the book of Acts, it must still be true today because the message hasn't changed. The command, even in Acts 2, which is not normally something we would look at to follow a pattern for the New Testament, but here we can because this command is simply this, preach about Jesus and people will be saved. And the reason that is, is God has ordained that his son's name would be exalted and declared in the world, and he would be praised through the work of his son. And so we don't know who who will be saved by that message, but we know this, God's people will be saved by hearing about Jesus. And I'm going to assume anybody I bump into is going to be one of God's people. And so I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to build that into my kids. I'm going to build that into my ministry. I'm going to build that into my friendships. And I hope they're all elect and they're all going to heaven. But my main concern is I want to exalt Jesus and watch him do the work in their hearts. And he does that through the proclamation of truth about him. There in Acts 2, it's a lengthy passage, Acts 2, 22. It's Peter's sermon. Peter learned from Jesus. You think that didn't affect him back there when Jesus says, I've got to go on and preach in other towns, Peter. Let us go on. Let us not stay at your house and set up the ministry. Let us go on. I think Peter learned something there. And it's evident here. Peter learned to be a persistent proclaimer. Men of Israel. Now, this is phenomenal. Peter, who was the guy who who bailed out on Jesus because he was afraid. He had a loud mouth, but he couldn't back up his words. And on the night Jesus was being betrayed, Peter was one of those men who betrayed him, who left him. Jesus restored him later on. And then all of a sudden, that man who was all mouth and no action, all of a sudden becomes both here. In the face of direct persecution, he is going to accuse the very men who just crucified Jesus, he's going to accuse them of murder. He's going to hold them guilty, and he's going to stick it in their face because he knows that Jesus will be exalted through that message, and they may be saved. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan or the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's just slightly accusatory. He is, he is accusing them. He is laying blame on them. He is admonishing them that what they did was wrong, yet it was part of God's plan to redeem them. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, now notice what Peter does. Peter starts to preach the word. He refers here to David's words. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had shown, had sworn rather, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, look what happens in verse 37. After preaching Jesus from the word. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, preaching, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He starts off this sermon saying, you, according to what God had ordained, you did this. You're guilty of this. You need to repent of this because this Jesus is the Messiah. And then God's Spirit quickens their hearts. And all it says there, it says all that the Lord God would call to himself, those people came and said, what shall we do? What shall we do? God's word has opened our hearts to see our sin and the greatness of this Savior, Jesus, we crucified with our own hands. What shall I do? Repent. Believe. And then it says 3,000 men were added to the church through the persistent proclamation of Jesus. Not gimmicks, not scams, not manipulative programs that churches employ. It's preaching Jesus that brings people into the church. 
preaching the word of God, exalting the Savior, that builds the church. That's what Jesus persistently taught his disciples, and that's what they persistently practiced. And we need to do that as a church. I want to do that here in the pulpit, but I want you to do it everywhere you go. I want you to do it with your little ones. You don't make your little ones become good little sinners. You lead your little bad sinners to Jesus when you discipline them, when you correct them. You evangelize them. You don't go out into the world and try to sneak people into the church by letting them think that this is just a place to hang out and have a good time and then slip the gospel in a little at a time. No, you go out to them and say, look, there is, there is hope for people like me. I was a sinner. God did something to save me through the work of his son. Could I tell you about that? Because I think you and I have a lot in common. We've both fallen short of the glory of God, and we need a redeemer. Can I tell you about him? Can I tell you what he did? It's amazing. When you do that, people think that you're not a fake, a hypocrite, and a pretender, and someone who's trying to manipulate them, and they actually will listen to you, respect you, and might even come to church with you. God's word is to be exalted in our evangelism, in our edification, in our discipleship, in everything we do as a church. It must be persistently pushed to the forefront. It must be preeminent. And that requires us knowing it as a church, being persistent in studying it, persistent in applying it, persistent in then sharing it. And the thing is, if you see it as your treasure that brought you salvation, and Jesus is the one who declared it persistently to show you that great salvation, then you would want to do it out of honor for him and because he accomplished it perfectly in your place. Even though you failed to do it, Jesus never failed to be a persistent proclaimer for you. You rejoice in that when you have that opportunity to witness and you get up there to do it and you're thinking, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and all of a sudden you, you, you chicken out. You don't have to go home and go, oh, I'm just a horrible, horrible Christian. I just, I, I'll never be able to do anything. No, at that point you say, Jesus, thank you. You are a persistent witness. You are a, you are a persistent proclaimer, and I trust that in you I will be persistent. The word persistently proclaimed is what built the church. Look down in Acts there a little further, 2.42. This is what edified, established Jesus' church. The reason you're here today is because the church said preaching must be preeminent here in Acts 2. The reason we're here today is because God's word has been faithfully proclaimed throughout the centuries as it's stated here. And they devoted themselves, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, teaching, and the fellowship. They came together to fellowship and they came together to learn truth. And to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They were devoted to doctrine, devoted to encouragement, and devoted to praying. And it says, as a result, look what happens. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then again, look what happens. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, these were a marked out 
people. The church is to be a marked out people, a people that are set apart by God, different from the world, distinct. And their distinction was they met and they reveled in the truth. They studied the apostles' doctrine and teaching. And they rejoiced in it personally. And they prayed about it practically. And then as a result, it says, the favor that they received from the world actually ended up causing them to see saints come into the church. Now, they didn't have favor with the world because they compromised. Because they tried to look like every other synagogue in town. Because they tried to look like the world. No, they looked different than the synagogues. They had a different message. They had different application and implications on their life. And they stood out. And that's what brought, that's what brought favor with the people. So the, the church is supposed to look different. We have a different message. We have a different purpose than the world, than religion. We have, we have God's revelation that exalts His Son's saving work. That Jesus Christ Himself took on flesh. God the Son came into this earth and lived a righteous life for us that we can't live. And then He died the death that we all deserved as sinners, as offenders of God. He took our place, our substitute on the cross. He died for us there. He rose to make us not only justified, but justified ambassadors who would carry forth his message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Jesus Christ alone, according to God's revelation alone. That's what builds a church. That's what makes us distinct in the world. That's what draws sinners to us saying, could you please tell me about the hope that's within you? Because I don't get it. I see you going through sorrow and suffering and difficulties, and yet you have this this desire to rejoice in those things. What's up with that? This world's temporal, friend. I have something eternal, and it's in me, and it's coming to me, and I'm going to be with him one day. This is my hope. That builds the church, that edifies the church, and it evangelizes the world. The gospel will do that. We need to believe that. We need to hold forth that message persistently. The word persistently proclaimed with love will unite the church, Ephesians 4. It is what drives us into the world, but it's also what drives us together in the church. Doctrine is important. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a false teacher because their doctrine says the Bible's doctrine is not important. Because that statement that doctrine is not important is a doctrinal statement. Doctrine is what Jesus said we are to proclaim. He says that doctrine will actually unite us and it will actually expose the heretics. Truth is actually supposed to distinguish us from those who preach error. That's what will unite us. And not only that, it will unite us in doctrine. It will unite us in purpose. Because our purpose is to exalt God. And we have to do that biblically. We have to know it doctrinally. So Ephesians 4 tells us that the church is is united or brought together around doctrine, around the persistent proclamation of truth. In Ephesians 4.15 it says, actually let's back up. Verse 12. 
He's talking about the, the apostles and prophets, and he talks about the shepherds, the pastors. And in verse 12, he says, they're given by Jesus, basically. They're, they're given by Jesus to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, it's interesting. God says, I, I gave you persistent proclaimers to teach you how to be persistent proclaimers, to equip you for the work of ministry. This verse is pointed to the church, not to the preacher here at this point. It's pointed to the church. He gave us these gifts to equip you. Spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is is given to a man so that he can equip God's church, Christ's body, to do the work of the ministry, to build up that body. Verse 13, 13 says, We do that until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, unity of faith is tied to the knowledge of the Son of God. Where do you find out about God? Where do you find out about the Son of God? Where do you find out anything pertaining to that which is spiritual from Scripture. He says, we do this to basically help you to mature to manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth. Now, the truth in this context is Scripture. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As you're taught truth, doctrine from Scripture, you are, you are being equipped by the Holy Spirit. You are being given one mind and one voice to sing God's praise as a church. Your, your mind is being conformed. Your heart is being transformed into the image of Christ. You have the mind of Christ given to you in Scripture. And it is going to affect you. And it's going to unite you so that when you talk to other Christians, you have this common bond. You have this love for truth that transcends this world. And it moves you. It moves you and directs you to care for one another in a supernatural way. That's why, again, the church is distinct. We need the church. We need one another. We need personal edification. We need discipleship. You need to be going to one another during the week, persistently proclaiming the truth to edify and admonish. I need it. I need people calling me, questioning me, asking me things. I need difficult things to rise up in my life so I have to go to God's Word and be reminded I am reliant on Him alone for ministry. I need that. And I need people coming alongside me saying, Brother, you need that. You need to be persistently proclaiming truth to one another to unite the church, to build the church. Now, my job and Nathan's job is to do this to unite you, and not only that, it's also to protect you. Whether you know it or not, there are wolves. And we are called under-shepherds for a reason. We carry the staff of God's Word to protect you and to beat off the wolves. And we have to teach you how, how you can go to God's Word and see the wolves for who they are. We need to teach you how to know the truth so that when the error rises up, you say, something's wrong here. 
That's why exposition is essential. That's why just going over verse after verse continually, consecutively, sequentially is such a benefit to the church. It builds a strong foundation for you. When you know something very well and something false comes along beside of it, you say, that's a counterfeit. Something's wrong with that. And so my job and Nathan's job is to teach the word to unite you and protect you from the wolves. That's what the Apostle Paul taught us in Acts, Acts 20. Acts 20. In verse 26. Paul had been at Ephesus. And he had served there for a long period of time. And he had served there basically going from house to house. It's interesting. He says, I taught you in public, and then I went from house to house, and I taught you privately. And I taught you from the Word of God. I didn't shrink back from telling you anything that was essential from Scripture. And then in verse 26, he says this. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's Scripture. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, he's speaking to the elders of this church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. You have oversight as an elder. You're to be looking out for them. And you better be looking out for your own heart, too. He says, do this for all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Well, that's, that's a weighty statement. He didn't say, so you could care for your church. He could care for your ministry. No, you do this to care for his church, his people. The church isn't a pastor's. Those ministries that love to stick their name, their guy's first name on the front of it, I just, it just repulses me. Randy Tyler's ministry. It's not my ministry. It's Christ's ministry. It's his church. You're just an overseer, but you better take care of them because they belong to Jesus. And he obtained it, he says, with his own blood. The church was bought with a price. That's a bride that belongs to Jesus, and you better guard that dear, dear bride. Because he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come. Now, if he stopped there, we would say, yeah, we see Jehovah's Witnesses, we see Mormons. That's not what he's saying. He says, these will actually come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now... Pastors, teachers, elders, overseers, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are set apart, sanctified. Be alert. Be alert. Have your senses sharpened. By the word of God. That's what we are commended to go to. We are commending, he's being He's commending us to God and to His Word. And Paul is saying here, these men will come in unless you persistently proclaim truth. 
If you don't build the church on right doctrine in Scripture and the glory of Jesus, false teachers will come in and drag off your disciples and deceive them. I'm not saying they're going to lose their salvation, but I'll tell you this. There's been many a Christian who has been stunted in their spiritual growth because of false teachers. If you watch TBN, you might be one of them. Those false doctrines of demons, any false doctrine, by the way, is a doctrine of demons, okay? We need to know that. It's one that distorts or twists the teaching of God's revelation. Any of those things will rob you as a Christian of your joy, because it will distort your view of God. And there is nothing greater than the view of God that comes from Scripture. That is your joy. That is your treasure. So our job is to persistently proclaim this truth. Your job is to persistently walk in this truth and proclaim this truth as you learn it from your examples, Jesus being the primary one. Then your under-shepherds. The Apostle Paul didn't shrink back from saying, follow my example. That's what he's saying here. Follow my example as I followed Jesus' example. That's really what he's saying here in Acts 2 or Acts 20. Jesus' instruction back in Mark, I'm going to end with this, Mark 138. In Mark 138, Jesus is telling us, he's telling us that he believes, according to God's direction, that preaching, preaching the word of God persistently is essential is effectual, and it is a non-negotiable. Look what it says in Mark 1, 38. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may Caruso, herald there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, heralding in their synagogues and casting out demons. Notice when he went someplace and he preached, there were results. The word of God was effectual. He's saying it is non-negotiable. This is why I came out. Now next week, we're going to look at why he came out. We're going to look at what that is implying here and what that looks like even for us as we go out with his message. But what we need to see is he wants us to know that we must see preaching, proclaiming, explaining, teaching as something we must be doing persistently as a church. Because it, again, is effectual. Because it brings God praise and it brings sinners hope. That's what happens. You think about these diseased and demonized people. (laughs) They were happy to hear his message. When he brought them that message, it wasn't the most attractive show in town, but it was the most effectual. It didn't appeal to the religious It appealed to the defiled. The religious wanted pomp and circumstance. Jesus says, I've got one thing to give you. I'm going to preach the word. I have the gospel of the kingdom to declare to you. We don't have to have pomp and circumstance. We've got something greater than externals. We have a living word that's living in our hearts that we can proclaim confidently and persistently as Christians. If you're a disciple... You need to listen to what he says in 38. Let us go with him into this world so that he may preach and preach through us. Let's pray. Father, we want, we want to submit to you this morning that we fail to do this. And 
we know that Jesus is far more than an example here. He is, he is the substance of what a perfect proclaimer looks like. And he did what we fail to do constantly. And he did so, as we'll look at next week, he did so most gloriously by persistently proclaiming the truth all the way to the cross of Calvary. God, I, I, know, that, I know that my proclamation falls short. I know that I fail in persistently holding forth your word. But when I fail, I am confident that Jesus never failed. And so I look to his perfection. I look to his obedience, his submission and direction. I look to him with hope that he will conform me to his image. His spirit, your spirit, your word is alive and living within me and within the saints. And I know that it will conform us. I know that it will transform us one day continually and eternally in heaven. Between now and then, we pray that you would cause your word to be persistently upon our hearts and in our minds and coming out of our mouth so that we, with one mind and one voice, can declare your praises as a church and give hope to the lost that sinners can be saved by trusting in what your Son has done and turning away from their sins, rejecting what defiled them and running with hope and anticipation to forgiveness in Jesus who paid their penalty upon the cross. Let us hope in that truth that was revealed in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.